Friends, it is such a joy to be in the evening pulpit together uh, tonight. Uh, I've been blessed as we've been working through First Peter together. And uh, I, thought, I thought since we were learning so much about suffering in First Peter, it would actually be really helpful to take a look at a psalm from the Old Testament where we see the psalmist actually dealing with suffering and injustice uh, as God's special person, uh, as, as God's, one of God's singers in the temple, Asaph. And um, as we go through this, this passage tonight, it's on page 485 to 486, what we're going to see is that Asaph moves from a place of bitterness at the pain that he's experienced to peace and refuge in the presence of God himself. And it's my prayer that the Lord will bless us in our own journey uh, as we walk through a world where we suffer with similar peace and refuge in God himself. So hear now God's word which comes from Psalm 73. Psalm 73 says this, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. Oh, Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who far off from you shall perish You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. 
Friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God, this word, stands forever. Let us pray and ask his help now as we look into it. Heavenly Father, we come to such a weighty passage tonight from one of your saints of old, looking for the fact that it might teach us how to breathe in a world that is full of injustice, how to breathe deeply of your promises, breathe deeply of your providence, and breathe deeply of the fact of our pain that we might not minimize it, and that we might journey through it instead to find rest even in the midst of a world where our questions may remain unanswered. We ask, Father, that you would bless this word and bless the teaching and preaching of it. Protect me from error as I come. And through it tonight, would you glorify your great name. It's in Christ's name we ask these things. Now apply and illumine these truths in our heart by your spirit. Amen. So it's one thing to talk about suffering as we've been doing on Sunday mornings in 1 Peter But it's a totally different thing, and I was actually very blessed by Knox's sermon this morning. It was a phenomenal picture of what God requires of people as they suffer. But one of the difficulties is in the midst of pain and injustice in the world that you would suffer from others is how do you actually move past the bitterness at the feeling of your suffering and get to a place of peace? This is because sometimes when we suffer personally and unjustly at the hands of people, the long-term bitterness and resentment that can result feels almost powerfully able to undo us. It's as if it can like tear us apart from the inside out. I've quoted from Elie Wiesel. He was a Jewish survivor of a concentration camp at Auschwitz. And as he saw the suffering of the smoke and fires of the... Uh, of the crematorium at Auschwitz, rising into the sky at night. He, he said that that moment, he discusses how his own faith was lost in the prison camp. In a, in a title of uh, his book, Night, in a poem called Never Will I Forget, he looks at the smoke of the fires from these ovens where the dead were burned, and sometimes the living were burned, and he declares... He will never forget that smoke because it made him forget God. Because it made him believe that God had forgotten him. That's the biggest pain of our suffering in this world, isn't it? It's the pain of unjust suffering. It it produces its own class of emotions. A class of emotions that we call bitterness or resentment or anger. As part of the spectrum of what we feel. And because it's so powerful, we need a paradigm to help us understand how you actually make it through that kind of pain and still feel sane. How do you make it through and gaze at that suffering without losing hope in the promise-keeping God who is still providentially ruling your life? That's honestly why we need a psalm like Psalm 73, because the question Asaph is bringing to God is how can we keep on going When the promise God gives us seems toothless to change anything in a world mired with injustice. That's what we feel deeply in our personal suffering. Especially when it comes from the wicked. The the wicked, whether it's uh, people who have done harm to us, people who are part of the church, people who are outside of the church. Anyone who does pain to us and exacts that sort of unjust suffering. We need a paradigm to make it through. 
But the big idea of what we're going to see tonight is that Asaph shows us we can only leave our bitterness at unjust suffering aside by resting in the refuge found in the presence of our peacemaking God. We can only lead the bitterness at our unjust suffering aside when we rest in the refuge found in the presence of our peacemaking God. We're going to see that through three headings tonight. We're going to see that from the view that Asaph presents. We're going to see the pivot that he finds. And we're going to look at the rest that he's restored to in this psalm. So the view that Asaph paints for us is one where he begins in this psalm. It's, it's sandwiched beginning and end uh, with this statement that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But there's a caveat that Asaph is bringing up to us. He's saying, but for me, I almost slipped. And the juxtaposition of the goodness of God with Asaph's peril grabs our attention because he's telling us, even though God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, I found a place in God's providence where it felt like I was coming undone. The word in Hebrew, stumble, literally means to pour out. Uh, he felt as if he was being eaten away and poured out like a drink offering almost, is the word how it's used in other parts of the Old Testament. Uh, and he feels like he's coming undone because he slips and stumbles because he's actually envies, envious. He's envious of the fact that the arrogant, wicked prosper. He said, I I had a a moment where I almost lost the whole farm, guys. Like where I saw the flourishing of the wicked in this world. And I felt like I was almost undone. And it instantly grabs our attention. He said, I almost bit the bullet because he sees the prosperity of the wicked. It's an age-old question of how does God allow the wicked to flourish in a world that he made and created? And that word for prospering, it's a word that's rich. It's the word shalom. It means peace on one translation. It can also refer to wholeness of life or body, right relationships and harmony between two parties. It can refer to prosperity, success, flourishing. It can refer to victory over one's enemies and the absence of war. Asaph is gripped with the flourishing and the prosperity of the wicked, and he actually envies them because they're at ease. And we have to sort of back up for a minute and ask, well, who is Asaph and why is he worried about the wicked? Asaph was appointed uh, as a, uh, the director of the temple choirs by David in 1 Chronicles 25.1. He would have seen all the events that served at the rise and fall of the monarchy of Israel. And he would have seen it come undone from the inside as Solomon and Solomon's son uh, committed egregious sinful acts. Even David had committed egregious sinful acts to where the kingdom was torn from God's people and split. And here at the beginning of book three in the Psalter, Asaph, he's, he's actually the author of the majority of these Psalms. Because in book three of the Psalms, it's the preserved collection of God's people grappling with the devastation that's affected on how they lost the temple, on how they lost God's presence, on how they were carried away into exile and suffering. And Asaph writes, probably from the time of David, he sees some of current events. 
He sees the wicked beginning to flourish and he's like, whoa, wait a minute, God. How, how are you allowing this to happen? He says, I was jealous because they flourish and are at peace. They're immune from pain and trouble in verses four to six. They're not in trouble. They're not stricken. That word stricken means plagued like other people are. They're not under the curse of your judgment. They take their prosperity as a prideful necklace. They, they go unchecked in the world, God. And they wear their circumstances as, as, as the stamp of approval. That, that they can continue on in their way. That they can wear violence as a garment. Their eyes swell out. They literally are so full of abundance that their eyes are bulging. Their hearts overflow with follies. And if that's not bad that they're at ease, they actually mock. They mock and scoff with malice. They threaten oppression. They take their might that they have and they use it as a privilege to the right of acting however they want in the world. They set their mouths against the heavens and they literally, they they strut through the earth, unchecked, unbalanced, by the holy God who Asaph has spent his days and night worshiping. Why would God allow this? And it's not just that they flourish. It's not just that they're at ease. They confuse God's people. They mire the waters of faithfulness and what it looks like. They, his people turn back and when they see the wicked, they too are confused that they're flourishing. They don't see anything wrong with the picture. They can't tell their right hand from their left and the wrong that the wicked promote. They're always at ease. They only increase in riches so that there's a crazy making effect. These wicked men question whether God is actually there for how much they proudly and defiantly exact their wicked will on vulnerable people. And they grow increasingly confident and mock him. Saying, surely he sees this God in the heavens. But actually, no, he doesn't, they say. How can God know? If this God really exists, then why doesn't he strike us down right now? These men are gaining a following and misleading God's people. And Asaph is telling us something deeply troubling about the view that he sees because he's at the brink of bitterness, friends. It's this view from the brink of bitterness that makes it such a complicated emotion when people personally suffer injustice. Asaph is legitimately angry that wrong is being done. Someone has done something wicked. The temple is affected. If you look over in verse 74, oh God, why do you cast us off? Or chapter 74, verse 1. Another psalm. God, why do you cast us off? Like literally, God has departed from his people in this instance in the history of God's people. There's something wrong that has happened. There are people who have contributed to this. There are people in Israel who have contributed to this. How could God allow his people to get so sideways? And that's how bitterness works. You feel anger. 
as a God-given way to signal to you that something is actually wrong. It's a good emotion to feel because it helps you actually make a choice and move towards a solution. You've been legitimately hurt or threatened. You needed to make a decision. God has given you anger as a way of invigorating you to move towards a solution. But in situations where God's people suffer injustice in a world like ours, where the bitterness sits in is the sense of powerlessness that Asaph feels. He's a temple singer. He's in the choir. He feels weak and vulnerable even though he is someone who lives in God's house. It seems like there's nowhere safe from these people. And this produces several effects. He's already said, I was envious. It's not just that he's discontent at what he has, it's that the wicked have harmed him and they have stolen his ease and erased any comfort that he would have so that the very comfort that he desires is what he's haunted by and gnawing at him as he looks at the wicked. It has left Asaph in envy because that's how we work in the midst of unjust circumstances in the world. We, we want the comfort that the powerful ones have, but if we have suffered injustice, we feel weak and unable to attain it. So just like Asaph, we become confused. And then we begin to build our definition of success on what the wicked say is success. And it forces us to ask, think about our world. How does it define flourishing? How does our society say this is what prospering is? Pain-free, sleek bodies, immune to aging, no adversity, the ability to do what you want, the moment you want, in an instant. That sounds like it's not that far from Asaph's day, doesn't it? (coughs) There's something intoxicating about it that Asaph is pointing out. And it's intoxicating to you and I. The wicked have a mindset of flourishing now and consequences never. And we fall prey to it too. We also fall prey to the similar lie that might makes right. Just like the wicked are transacting on the people of God in this passage. We think that if we're ever going to get ahead, we have to start to throw around our weight like the wicked too. And we become brutes and beasts just like he says he was in verse 21. We think if the strong ones are the ones who will survive, it's only a matter of time before someone hurts you. So we should take on strength too. We should use it in the same ways as the wicked. But this is not to be the way of the people of God, is it, friends? That's not what Knox preached about this morning. That's not how we're supposed to respond in suffering. But it forces us to ask... When you look at the world around you and you are awake at night, what is it that keeps you awake when you have personally suffered injustice? Who is it whose situation in life that you want more than anything, even though they may be less than above reproach in their character? Who is so at ease that the pain of their comfort actually eats away at your own soul? Who is it whose success keeps you up when you consider the wrongness even though you consider the wrongness of their character? Who is it that makes you wonder, is God really watching? That's the disorienting effects from the brink of bitterness. One is envy. The second is even more unsettling. 
It's a gnawing sense of meaninglessness. You take on what starts as anger. You feel pain. You need to make a decision, but it settles in and you imbibe a cynical view of the world just like the wicked. That's the toxicity of bitterness, friends. We so begin to define ourselves by the suffering that's been done to us that we actually swallow even more bitter poison, hoping for a solution. He's wearied in verses 13 and 14. All in vain have I kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Where I thought God would actually strike the wicked, I am the one that has ended up stricken. I am the one that's plagued. I'm the one that's kept up at night. Even though wrong has been done to me or to someone I love or to God's people. This is the most unsettling effect that bitterness produces. We wonder whether God is even there and we begin to look on any sense of trusting in him through the same hostility that the wicked show towards everyone in their world. And if there's one thing that pervades in our world more than anything, friends, it's the cynicism that someone is out to get you. That everyone has their angle. That it's only a matter of time before people take advantage of you. So you've got to protect yourself. And it's that kind of mindset that Asaph is actually finding himself flirting with. Because of how powerless he feels And how pain is so much a part of his life right now. If we reach this place, we have a choice just like Asaph, though. That's the beautiful news of this passage. We can cling to the bitterness and only become more brutish. Or we can take our sadness, anger, and resentment and try to find a place where we can pivot back to God. Friends, that's what Asaph does. That's the pivot of perspective that he finds. And he finds it where? In God's house. Verses 16 to 17, he says, I was so wearied by the task of making sense of this pain. When I thought to understand it, it was so heavy. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. Asaph, in a moment of despair, goes to one of the only safe places of refuge he still knows. And he seeks the pivot that God provides. Why would the sanctuary be the place where he could discern the end of the wicked? Well, if you look throughout Scripture, you see the sanctuary was actually the place where God told his people I'm going to place my name here. So it would have represented his name. It was the place where God dwelt with his people. The sanctuary spoke to him of the very name of God, that name of God, of the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He will by no means pardon the guilty. They would have reminded him of that name of the God who will make amends. The God who dwells with his people. But it's also the place 
where Asaph, as a choir singer, knows it's the place where God has made a promise that peace would dwell between he and his people. It was a place where God swore an eternal covenant of peace between he and his people. And it would be played out daily through the priesthood. That God would mediate the presence of his sinful people through the sacrifices and propitiation. That's just a fancy religious word for saying where atonement would be made and wrath would be poured out not on the people of God but on a sacrifice. This made the sanctuary a place where your senses were assaulted by the fact of bloodshed. It literally smelled like blood and there were pools of it everywhere when you walked inside. And as Asaph walks in and he smells and senses the presence of the God who will by no means pardon the guilty, but who is faithful to the generations, to the thousands of the generations, and who has sworn peace forever with his people, his perspective shifts. Because it's only as Asaph made his way into the house of mercy that he could gain perspective that would help him with his bitterness. But that still doesn't answer the question of how. The question of how is the simple fact of bloodshed, friends. The temple and its sacrifices would remind him, in a world that rejected him, the shed blood would be a sign of mercy, of the costly price of what God's real and righteous judgment requires. The shedding of blood would say, this is mercy for me, but it is judgment on my enemies who don't know it. And it would remind him that there is a day coming where this God, who has made a way for peace with his people, will finally make the world right again in his judgment. Because the shadow of the sacrifice would fall over him. And it would remind him that there's a day coming where God would make that bloodshed and that judgment effective across the whole world and everything would be undone that was not right as God had designed it and so in a in the temple it would have reminded him in a world that rejected him and isolated him the mercy of God embraced him it would have reminded him that the invisible hidden sins of his enemies in which he was victimized in secret or eventually in open, they would be seen and made visible and absorbed like a sponge by the payment that God had provided. The isolation he felt from his sin and shame would be resolved as he saw in the sanctuary. God mercifully guaranteed his sacrifice would be covering that guilt and shame. And friends, that's really where the pain of injustice falls in on God's people. Because that's what shame is. Shame has three aspects. Ed Welch is very helpful. Uh, he's, he's one who's written a book called Shame Interrupted. And I got this definition from him. He said, shame has three aspects. Shame is the recognition that I have done something wrong and everyone knows it. I'm associated with something wrong and everyone knows it. And someone has done something to me and everyone knows it so that I am under a veil of dirt and filth. And that's the pain of what Asaph feels. He says, everyone knows it because I'm associated with your temple. 
I was the one who knew your promises best. And I've experienced the lack of fulfillment of your faithfulness worst. And maybe he's even been personally sinned against in such egregious ways that the shame and guilt of what he feels is overpowering. And that's what drives him into this place of remembering his anger and bitterness. Because it should not have been this way. And maybe even as the temple dissolved and was destroyed and the the emblems of the temple were carried away into exile, maybe Asaph knew. I was part in some way. Maybe I played part in some way of the destruction of this holy place. But in the shedding of blood, he sees a God who comes near to the ashamed and sees them instead of through their shame, through the lens of his cleansing atonement so that they are clean in his sight. There's no more power that shame has to isolate him because he stands vindicated in the presence of the one, the only one whose opinion truly matters. And this is where the solution to his bitterness comes from. He's, he's faced the painful injustice of the wicked. And he's able to pivot from making that pain his identity into having it propitiated away by the sovereign mercy of the God who cleanses him through sacrifice. He says, if blood has been shed, it means mercy for me. And it also means judgment for those who do not have a sacrifice. And it gives a foretaste to the reality that one day God will mercifully judge the the wrongs done and forever remove their stain from this world. Friends, that's what God says to us in the propitiation of our sins. And Asaph sees that here in part and in picture through the sacrifice of a substitute And that pivot gives him the perspective needed to move out of bitterness and find rest and refuge in the shadow of the Almighty. And that's where the rest of the psalm is spent, in God's refuge. He's given the blessed perspective of seeing just how undone his bitterness had made him in verses 18 to 20. He's he's given perspective. He says, I was like a brute. I really see how stupid I was. I'm sorry, verse 21, he says, I really see how stupid I was. But he's also given the perspective of seeing that the wicked will not have their way in verses 20, 18 through 20. They will be set in slippery places and fall to ruin and they'll be destroyed in a moment because God will eventually be roused from what seems like his sleep to finally and faithfully fulfill his promises. Their influence will be so unfelt after God rouses from his slumber, that it will only seem like a bad dream. And he's, he's given the, the, the blessing of repentance from his bitter cynicism in verses 21 to 22. He's given the gift of seeing himself as he was defined by his bitterness because of the costly mercy that he beheld in the sanctuary. And it makes us ask, is your view of God's nearness in your personal pain, friends, big enough to know that he's kind and gracious enough to handle your inappropriate responses to injustice in the world? 
Is God's gracious provision enough to know and help you know that he's still near to you when you have a problem with your suffering? Because that's what's so restful is he's given this picture of God who has been unchanging in his faithfulness even as Asaph has been wavering in weakness. But that's not all that he gets. He also gets a consoling vision of how God is actually near to those who suffer. Verses 23 and 24 says, You guide me with your counsel. Afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph is driven from the place of his despair to see the nearness of a God who propitiates his shame and sin and who will solve the problems of the wicked eventually. And what he sees, even as he sees God, and him, even, if, even as he sees himself, this embittered, brutish person, he sees the faithful God who's near and guides. This is shepherd language. He takes me by my right hand. By, you take me by your right hand. Uh, so this is like Psalm 23, 6. You, you are the God who prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. That I will never know a place, even in the painful injustice of this world, where your provision does not reach me, Father. Because you're the good shepherd who's continually with me despite my own inconsistency. He's seeing that God has actually been with him the whole time, supporting him and holding him up, and he's actually not succumbed to the attacks of these wicked men. God is sustaining him, but also, uh, one commentator said in this passage, The most consoling fact of God's nearness is that God identifies with Asaph in his powerlessness. It says for when Asaph says, you take my right hand, um, when you take my right hand, it was John Golding Jay who said this. When a powerful person stands at the right hand of the weak or needy, it means that they will be protected or rescued. When Yahweh actually takes the right hand of someone, it indicates that he identifies with them and gives them divine recognition and support as God does to Israel. Even as he feels forsaken by his friends who were part of God's people who have done wicked things, even as he feels the pain of what's been done, What presses in most as he gains this perspective is that God has actually been near to him. He identifies with the powerless and the weak because that's who this God is. And it makes you wonder, friends, when you think about how we as Christians try to respond to a world that we fear retaliation of today, we typically think we have to fight fire with fire, don't we? But this actually shows you why we can be the people who take on the sufferings of Christ and let others do harm to us 
in a godly, righteous way as we seek to minister the gospel and suffer like Jesus in a world that hates us. It's because God is near to us in the midst of our weakness. And in your weakest moments of life, friends, do you know that that's actually the place where God makes his home with you? When you feel as if you have been the victim of other people's sin, that's the place where God is wanting to be near and dear to you. And he wants to give you his presence so that he will finally prosper you. Because I will eventually be brought to glory. That's what the psalmist Asaph sees. He says, even in a world where everything's been taken from me, one thing that won't shake or change is that you are my portion. You're my place. You're my refuge. Nothing. Not even the power of wicked people who oppress your saints can reach me when I rest in the refuge that's found in the shadow of your wings. Asaph sees what mercy has truly accomplished that God has given himself to his people. When he says, whom have I in heaven but you? He's saying, God, you are my portion even when I feel forsaken. In the face of every loss, What has happened is he comes to see that God is the place where he belongs. God himself, who will be his king and lord, will eventually bring his kind intentions about in the life of this simple singer of the temple. But it makes you wonder, there are ways that we can try to assuage the bitterness of people that really just whitewashes their pain. Sometimes we minimize our bitterness And we downplay it because we don't want to be guilty of unsanctified emotions. But that actually undercuts all of your righteous anger that God has graciously used to bring you to a point of decision and action. Or the other folly that Asaph has sort of fallen in is we take on the identity of bitterness. And we so define ourselves by it that We can't see the solution to our pain is found in the portion where God wants to give us himself. And this does not whitewash his pain because the very word where Asaph begins, he says, I almost stumbled. I was almost poured out. And then he goes to the temple where he sees the blood poured out. And then in the shadows of of the future of God's gracious provision for his people. He sees a high priest who would come, who would pour out his own blood for his people because there would be a king who would come and who would bear the sufferings of his people and would take on their shame so that there was nothing left that would separate his people from the good pasture and portion of this gracious God who sets a trajectory of glory for Asaph. Because God would send his own son into our story to experience suffering and injustice, to redeem the realities of being rejected and cursed in our place in a world that bites and devours us. 
all that you and I might actually be pure in heart and trust this gracious God's intentions, even if it means that we pass through bitter, bitter pain. Friends, that's how we make it through from the journey of bitterness to the place of peace. You can't get there without finding rest in the refuge of the God who provides and propitiates sin by his sacrifice. Asaph ends in the place where he realizes that there's poles that are established in this peace that God has come. He says, Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And that's so beautiful because the very thing that got him in trouble with the wicked is the very place where he finds refuge and rest in the end. Because God draws near to his people. God, who was rejected and mocked by the wicked, is actually the one who walks with and helps the weak, even as they suffer. So that you and I have a choice. We can rest in the same refuge that's found in this God. Or we can buy the lie of our bitterness And we can believe that his promises will not be true. But it will only do destruction to our souls in the end, friends. May God help us as a church and as people move towards his gracious peace. Let us ask for his help in that now. Father, we ask that as we come through the storm of Asaph's angry bitterness that we would come away from this time with a deep sense of being hidden in the gracious provision of your love. Hide us in you, Lord Jesus, that we might find refuge because you are, only, you are the only safe place in a world that rejects your purposes and that makes your people suffer. Father, we ask that as we go through uh, uh, the rest of our week, the rest of our days in this pilgrim life that you have painted for us, that we would be people who do not dwell in the bitter land, but we pivot to the place of rest in the refuge that you provide. So help us cling to our Savior in that way now, we ask in his name. Amen.